Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Homecoming, a podcast that provides the space for people who identify as Asian, Asian American, and Pacific Islander to share their stories, experiences, and insights about a variety of different topics. I'm your host, Angel Rena, and in this episode of Homecoming, Summer Nasser, a speaker and analyst on Yemeni affairs and the CEO of the humanitarian INGO Yemen Aid, joins me on the podcast. Some of you may have read in the news or on social media about the humanitarian crisis in Yemen, a country located on the southern end of the Arabian Peninsula in Western Asia. The civil slash proxy war that's been occurring for years in Yemen, the details of which we'll get into really soon in this episode, has prevented shipments of food and other basic resources from entering the nation and the cost of food is extremely high. This has caused Yemen's humanitarian crisis, which according to UNICEF is the largest in the world with more than 24 million people, which is around 80% of the population, in need of humanitarian assistance, including more than 12 million children. Over 2 million Yemeni children are malnourished and a Yemeni child dies a preventable death every 10 minutes. And now the coronavirus outbreak has really compounded the entire situation. Health services already strained are even more so. Millions of children are now unable to access education and tens of thousands more children could develop life-threatening acute malnutrition over the next few months. So I know that was a lot of information and a lot of really serious information that I've just thrown at you guys all at once but it definitely needs to be put out there and we need to do what we can and take action if we're able to. Um, For me, I saw on my social media feed a a sort of burst of Instagram stories related to Yemen's humanitarian crisis a couple months ago, but that was it. And I, I really wanted to have Summer on the podcast to spread awareness about Yemen and also um, give us uh, you know, ways that we can help and also give her a platform to talk about herself, her background, her activism, her work, and Yemen aid. So Summer, thank you so much for being on this podcast episode this week. I'm so, so grateful that you took the time out of your day to do this with me. Um, how are you? How, how have you been since we last chatted? Good, good. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to talk a little bit more. And so far, so good. You know, we're taking it day by day here in New York regarding COVID. And we're just thankful every day to, you know, to be healthy and, you know, to take things, um, you know, to take just everything in and soak it in and say, you know, thank God, you know, we're still here. So. Yeah, for sure. I, 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 think this is going to be a great episode and I think the listeners are going to learn a lot. So I'm really looking forward to learning more about you and your work. So first, before we get into any of the questions, uh, would you mind introducing yourself to the listeners? Um, You can mention your name, uh, where you're from, slash where you live, what kind of work you're involved in, and really any other part of your identity that you want to talk about. Yeah. Um, so as you introduced me, Summer Nasser, I'm from New York. I was born and raised here, actually. Um, I am a public affairs, you know, public speaker on Yemeni affairs, pretty much. And I uh, work in the humanitarian sector more recently, uh, since pretty much the, I would say, early 2017 um, 
time period. And, um, and it's, uh, it's just been a great uh, blessing to do it. Very challenging, but very, very much um, great to kind of do every day. It's very rewarding in, in that way. Um, and yeah, I'm Yemeni American. So I'm really proud of that as well. Great. Yeah. So I wanted to start off this episode with asking you about your background as a Yemeni American and how it relates to the work that you do today, um, especially when it comes to Yemeni affairs. So, you know, what was it like growing up as a Yemeni American in New York City? And how do you feel like your ethnic background contributed to your work slash focus on social justice and activism? Yeah, I mean, it's always, it's, it's great to identify as Yemeni American. I think uh, I really take pride in that, um, given that I was born here. So I'm very patriotic in that sense, but also I really take seriously um, and take value the, you know, the, just my ancestors and, you know, my roots and my parents, you know, where they, when they immigrated to the United States, their stories. Um, and I knew that when I kind of grew up here, I realized um, over the years, specifically when I was I would say 16, um, when the Arab Spring happened in Yemen in 2011, um, that, you know, not a lot of people know about Yemen. And what can I do to change that? You know, what, where's the gap where I can see myself useful um, for the public, whether it's information, whether it's just the, you know, breaking myths, because there's a lot of that, especially when, you know, another, uh, you know, randomly people may not understand that culture. So they might think a certain way towards that culture. So it's always great to kind of break that barrier. And then also, um, how can I, what can I do in the United States, given that I am from, I was born and raised here, what kind of resources do I have to kind of benefit um, the Yemen people? And so this is basically how I kind of work on a day-to-day basis, you know? And I think it's important to realize that, um, you know, we're blessed to kind of have a structure in place somewhat here. Um, And so, you know, what can, can we replicate some of this back overseas? Is there something I can do on a societal level, um, you know, how I can benefit and support? And so um, it's been great. I think I, I actually started the activism when I was 16. So I was actually, it was 2011. And I actually left Yemen to the Arab Spring. Um, interestingly, as I said in our last conversation, that um, I was in my senior year and I left pretty much one month or maybe two, three months before I was supposed to graduate. So it put me at risk. But I just love the feeling of understanding what uh, Yemen people wanted. And I just was blown away by their amazing, um, just, you know, just generosity, but also their resilience. I think it's really important to kind of share, you know, to live in a situation where you're living day by day and struggling and, you know, people just want to live normally like any other, you know, American citizen, for example. So, um, so yeah, I, that's basically how I see myself um, in anything, whether it's in Yemen aid or whether even, you know, before Yemen aid or even after Yemen aid, I really feel like anything that I do has to be somewhat tied to Yemen. Yeah, for sure. I think, you know, putting things into perspective is definitely really important. And I I think you and your work are, are really inspiring to a lot of people out there, especially, you know, what you do on a grassroots level. And um, one of your main endeavors is Yemen aid. Uh, but before I ask you about that and get into that, I thought it would be really helpful uh, to the listeners if we sort of delved into Yemen's political situation and history a bit, um, just so their knowledge about Yemen and the humanitarian crisis and what, what sort of caused it will be a little more robust. 
robust. So can you give a history of what factors have caused slash contributed to this humanitarian crisis in Yemen? And I know that, you know, it's complex, but feel free to simplify to whatever you're comfortable with. Yeah, it is very complex. I mean, there are many people who uh, attempt to uh, really try to kind of analyze Yemen's situation, even as a profile, but it's, it's every day we're learning something new, even as Yemenis, by the way, I mean, it changes every day. Um, so yeah, let, let's, let's kind of dive into this in a simplified manner, and I'll try to do this as quickly as possible. Um, so actually, a lot of people don't know this, but Yemen um, was actually two separate countries uh, prior to 1990. Um, we can, you know, say South Yemen and North Yemen, which basically the two countries. Um, during the time in the 60s, both sides of Yemen um, or, you know, the south of Yemen and north of Yemen uh, experienced really, um, uh, you know, the British occupation, right, in the south. And then in the north, you had the Ottoman Empire. Um, and during those times, there was always revolts and conflict and civil wars. Um, and interestingly, though, in uh, the north of Yemen, um, which ties into why we're going to be talking a little bit more about today's conflict, um, there was a kingdom which was called the Metwekalite kingdom and it was basically uh, a descendant version of what rulers would claim to be um, and so they had ruled Yemen at one point um, uh, in the 60s and so um, today what we're dealing with and obviously uh, just so I can kind of clarify in 1990 then the, you know both sides of the country reunified um, and then 1994 there was a civil war between you know the south and north of Yemen after unification uh, due to some injustices that um, just very long injustices, unfortunately. But today we're dealing with a uh, what you would call a coup of 2014, which is basically um, a coup that happened in September specifically by Houthi rebels, which are um, descendants of well, what they claim to be um, descendant rulers of the country, or they, what they think of as maybe, another word would be, a superior group over Yemeni citizens. Um, and this was like a, what you would claim is a uh, religious descendant group. So, you know, they think of it as a religious uh, level of superiority, which is um, interesting on its own, but that's, that's one side of the conflict. Um, and then in 2015, pretty much after the coup happened uh, against the state and its um, institutions, uh, the Saudi Arabian intervention came along per request by the president of Yemen. Um, and that was in March specifically. So uh, that, if you fast forward now, is questionable because we're still in the same situation. But um, this is where we're at right now. And I think it is important to kind of understand. And I always try to kind of break it down in something that's more relatable because a lot of people who are not from Yemen, they find it a little bit confusing and it's very confusing even for us. Um, you know, it's basically, I would really kind of boil it down to um, a racial conflict. I, th I think so, especially when you're dealing with groups that always feel like they're superior, right? So, um, you know, you can, you can relate it here to a lot of racial tensions for now, uh, the Black Lives Matter movement and things of that nature. Um, and so we're very much in a very problematic uh, situation where, you know, the conflict has not ended. It caused multiple, multiple layers of problems. Um, and then also, Add that on top of the Arab Spring gap, which was the reason why 
um, a lot of people were frustrated is because there was actually humanitarian crisis, maybe to not, not to the severity level that Yemen is now, but in 2011, the Arab Spring essentially happened in Yemen because of the humanita of a humanitarian crisis, and unemployment, about 70% unemployment. And so um, it was just a synopsis that I think is important. And unfortunately, you know, we're in a situation where there's a lot of countries involved um, and, you know, Yemen's sovereignty is at, is at stake at this point. Thank you so much for explaining all of that. Yeah, um, I, I was also wondering, you know, uh, also, why are all of these like food shipments and shipments of like basic necessities being blocked and not accessible to, you know, Ye Yemenis who are living in Yemen? Yeah, so um, we actually have two really main ports. I mean, we have multiple, but really the two main ones are uh, in the south, which is Aden port. Um, and then you also have the port of Hodeida, which is on the western region um, of Yemen. And uh, specifically in, in Aden's port, it is uh, perfectly fine. I mean, we ship as an organization, we tend to ship a lot of medical shipments and they go smoothly. Now, there is a conflict um, in terms of authority in Hodeida on the western side of the country. Now, what's interesting about that is because, um, you know, uh, Houthis control that area, so they tend to have the authority and, you know, they can either slow down shipments or, um, you know, slow down shipments or actually clear them quickly. It all just varies on uh, many different things. And, I, and a lot of people, you know, when I talk about this, um, I talk about one thing, and it's always, unfortunately, humanitarian aid it becomes politicized and weaponized. Um, and so this is where that comes along when it comes to that impact. I know that in Hadeza there were a few issues regarding that, that there was no shipments coming in and also shipments coming out. Uh, but uh, it was, from my knowledge, resolved. But again, it, you know, it fluctuates. It's a very fluid situation. But in Aden specifically, because I can only kind of talk on that since I have experience with that, it's, uh, it's pretty much doable. But the problem right now is, you know, when you're limiting importing and exporting of the country, the economic situation kind of depletes, right? So uh, this humanitarian crisis is mainly an economic one. A lot of people don't think about that, but that's what our problem is at this time. You know, the currency is just ridiculously inflated, um, and that means that people cannot afford food, even though there's ample of food in the country. Um, and so that really is a problem. And so, you know, INGOs or NGOs, while we do tend to kind of temporarily, you know, help or assist you know, Yemeni citizens, it's not a, it's not a solution that I think is really applaudable, I, and in, in my opinion, at least long term. Um, so, so we're in a very complex crisis, unfortunately. Gotcha. Yeah, thank you again for sharing all of that. I think it is super important for people out there to know kind of what factors have contributed to this um, and, and at least try to pinpoint some general root causes, even though that can be really hard. Um, and also think about like how different countries like the US can be complicit. Um, but you know, it is quite complicated, like you said, uh, when you think about who and like which countries are involved. But if people are interested in 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 uh, knowing and learning more about Yemen's humanitarian crisis, I've 
I encountered some resources when I was doing research for this episode, and I'm sure, Summer, you also have some resources that you could offer um, later on in this, in this episode. So I will definitely make a Google Doc um, of those resources and put it in the episode description and on our social media so people uh, can access that. Um, but yeah, so moving on to Yemen aid. So Yemen's situation and, and its humanitarian crisis obviously impacted you as a Yemeni American, but just as a human being. Um, so I wanted to talk about Yemen Aid, uh, the organization you're the CEO of. So what is Yemen Aid and what is the work that the organization does? Um, and feel free to provide examples. And how did the organization get started? All right. Yeah, I'm excited to talk about this part of the segment of the podcast. So um, I actually took over Yemen Aid um, leadership pretty much in early 2017. Interestingly, this organization was founded by um, Yemeni American woman in Connecticut, and they're elderly or not elderly, but you know, older woman who just had a vision of it being localized. It was just something just out of a response, a quick response, and I love that about them. Um, and so I got a call from one of the co-founders. She's actually Pakistani-American, which is amazing of its own. And it kind of just tells you how many people really want to help. Um, and so, you know, I met with them and we took the organization to an international level. And that was really important. So we went from a very small localized organization in Connecticut. We're now in New York and we're actually licensed as an international NGO by the Ministry of uh, planning and international cooperation in Yemen. And so um, it made everything so much easier. One of the things that I found um, when I'm, you know, looking at the scope of Yemen's situation, specifically interventions by community or by INGOs or whatever it may be, or, you know, I, I think of the lack of access. Um, and so that's where I see Yemenine. I see how can we bridge between, let's say, the West um, and Yemen. It's hard to get access in Yemen due to the conflict, right? It's a beautiful country of its own. A lot of people want to visit, but before that, a lot of people want to help. Uh, and so we have the access, we have the network. Um, and so we kind of created that bridge. And, you know, luckily we've been really successful at it. Uh, and at the end of the matter, you know, at the end of the day, it's, you know, we're Yemeni American professionals as well. And we have an identity that's both Yemen and U.S. So, you know, we try to kind of understand, we understand the situation and, you know, the thinking of Americans, but also we understand Yemeni's, you know, Yemeni crisis. And I think that's an expert view of kind of information to be given to a lot of areas that don't have a lot of information on Yemen, essentially. So, um, so that's basically how we see ourselves. We want to kind of assist in any way, shape, or form, but mostly in the correct way. Unfortunately, we've seen a lot of interventions in Yemen that are uh, not really supportive to, you know, to what I think would be long-term. Um, it's actually temporary, which is fine. I think there's two ways to look at intervention. I think it's urgent in the long-term and developmental. So, um, while long-term is more obviously costly but more effective, a lot of people went to the urgent because the crisis happened so quickly, just the, you know, the deterioration of society plummeted real quickly, unfortunately, too. Um, but after five, six years of conflict, we realized that we can't keep on being a band-aid 
to you know this this war the first thing we need to do is end the war at this rate uh because nothing you know is really being done except really creating more problems um but at the second at, you know the second point is is that we have to fill the gap so yemen aid what it does is that we do urgent interventions which is pretty much the status quo of what humanitarian assistance looks like so food baskets you know temporary shelters things like that but also we started to work on long term interventions like greenhousing um activities farming livelihood activities you know economic development projects um we're looking at creating programs we've done ambulance services of its kind free of free of charge 24/7 just like here in the United States um you know the 911 concept is the same concept we built in Yemen so we kind of replicated what we already have here and sometimes take for granted and uh implemented there we've also created the first breast cancer clinic in one of the provinces of Yemen because we really believe that we have to kind of break the you know the taboos of um women's health and you know trying to kind of reapproach it in a way that's actually more comfortable for them Uh so yeah it's it's been life changing it's been great to kind of bring those those types of projects and then another thing is that like we've been bringing in green energy so solar energy is something we really focus on actually all of our wells if you actually want to help create a well in Yemen or you know rehabilitate one we only do solar water wells i think we look at the challenges of what residents are already dealing with they don't have you know diesel for generators they don't even have generators so how do they get water out you know so using just natural you know things that we already have such as sunlight and creating a way to kind of helping you know to help them um lessen their struggle every day is really important and i think that's what really helps human yeah yeah again thank you so much for explaining all of that i think it's it's really cool um to read up on all of the projects that you guys have been involved with and have created um i was wondering do you have any particularly memorable moments from working at yemenade you know one of the great things about working at yemenade is actually visiting yemen and so um I just came back. I wouldn't say I just. I always say I recently came back even though I really wish I did. Uh last summer I was in Yemen uh for a good month and a half or so and I love being there. I usually go there even before Yemeni. I was always there per year. Uh at least one visit. Um even when I was a child my parents always sent me there. Uh but anyways, um you know what's really mind-boggling to me is that when you actually go they're not as a you know not on the usual vacation time like you would do with the family but more so on a mission to kind of you know understand Yemen's problems visiting hospitals you know and i was really just dumbfounded by just the you know just the struggles that they're dealing with even on a basic level um in hospitals so for example i i mean it's mind boggling to me i actually teared up because i'm like wow this country is like literally crumbling its infrastructure is crumbling its systems are crumbling everything is crumbling at this rate um i mean i kid you not like i found in hospitals i found items that were are that are used in post soviet you know union days i mean it's really really bad um companies that you know like refrigerated companies that are actually from you know that are created in the US that have closed down already decades ago and they still have these machineries and i'm just mind boggled by the amount that they're just utilizing whatever they have even though it's a, just a really crippled situation to kind of continue going now 
speaking about the health part, you know, half of Yemen's health facilities have closed down. So really, even the ones that are opened are, um, are just crumbling. Um, and so I guess my experience is I love hanging around with kids um, over there. I love being around with people. I like sitting home, you know, sitting down in orphanage homes and just really kind of soaking it in and understanding their view, you know. But what I find mind-boggling is the love of simplicity, you know, and I think it kind of brings me back to a humbled place um, where, you know, I don't need the newest MacBook or the newest iPhone to survive. <laughs> like, you know, it's those things that just make me realize that sometimes the simpler life is a better one. Um, and it's interesting because when you're there, you're like, yeah, this is amazing. But when you come back here, it's like it doesn't work out. <laughs> but um, but yeah, I think that's like my own experiences. I was actually in the war in Yemen um, for the first six months of it. And I saw really unfortunate things. And I think that's one of the reasons why I came back in 2015. Um, I think it was, yeah, 2015, um, the summer of 2015. And, you know, I realized I said, there has to be something I have to do. Like there has to be something, whether it's advocacy, right? Messaging, emailing, you know, public speaking, fine. Or something else. And then, you know, it's just, it's crazy. But then I get a call from Yemeni. That's just mind blowing to me. So I thought, you know, this is the right time. This is the right calling. Let me do what I have to do. At least then um, whatever I can do, it just makes me sleep better at night. And at the end of the day, if, you know, I can't continue this all the way through, at least I did what I, you know, could have done uh, for that time being. So, yeah, it's just been a mix of many emotions, honestly. Yeah. And you, you, you kind of touched on this uh, before with, you know, like urgent intervention versus long-term work. And I was wondering, in your opinion, like what kinds of things would, go, would need to go into the work, into creating like institutional and long-term change, if that makes sense? Yeah, you know, it's, it's multidimensional, I think, in my opinion. Um, there are so many problems in Yemen, you know, there's so many layers to it. There's so many angles to it. And honestly, sometimes I'm just, I ask myself, I'm like, where, you know, where in the world do I start at this rate? Um, because everything is just crumbling, right? Whether it's, um, you know, whether it's the already, you know, built in systems of governance, which is already crumbling on its own. So do we do capacity building or do we, you know, like even the, the public well system, public sanitation, sewage, you know, all that, everything is literally just horribly done. The thing is with that, it's like you really need a group of people with a vision um, and you need people to actually believe in the, the mission itself. It, those things cost a lot. And I always try to, even when I sit down with, you know, uh, authorities on the ground, I always try to say, you know, you're still responsible for the way things are being done, whether it's, you know, the lack of, you know, maintenance or something, that's still your responsibility. I always try to say you cannot depend on INGOs for this because at this rate, that's what it looks like. Um, but what I love about certain um, initiatives that we've done, and we're working with a group of people from all over the country, whether it's here in the US or in, um, in the UK, for example, you know, we, try to take in microeconomic development projects that don't cost much, um, but changes lives. It doesn't, it doesn't have to be, you know, underground systems, right? It, it, it could be just helping 
uh, a family of farmers or um, helping women who have been widowed because of conflict. I mean, you know, finding jobs or training them or skilling, you know, just skills. And I think skills are so key here, even in the United States, right? Skills is what's really, skills and experience are really the two key points that get you hired on a job, honestly. So how do we kind of uh, build that for them? And so we do that, you know, it's not, it's not like it doesn't, it's not like it's rocket science, but it needs a lot of people um, effort. And I think it needs a vision and also patience. Those results don't happen overnight, not like a food basket distribution um, where, you know, you just they take the baskets and you know that they're going to get fed for one month. It's seeing tomatoes grow over the last, you know, the last four months and creating that, that developmental change. So it just varies in many different ways. But I think it's multi-layered. Yeah, and I also wanted to talk about COVID-19 because our world has been impacted by this huge global pandemic. And, you know, how has Yemen been impacted by coronavirus? And how is Yemen aid assisting Yemenis during this pandemic? Yeah, so, you know, Yemen has already been dealing with uh, an overwhelming health crisis, whether it's cholera, dinge fever. I mean, we're talking about ancient old diseases that um, are very easy, you know, easily preventable, but unfortunately due to lack of water access and, and things like that and basic healthcare, um, it then becomes really, really extremely challenging to kind of, um, to kind of face. So these hospitals, which I kind of said earlier and explained that half of Yemen's facilities have closed down, whatever is left um, was pretty much the only hospitals that's if they were functioning even properly um, and operating properly. When COVID happened, you know, it was, it was a really, it was a really big problem. Uh, and I, I didn't think a lot of people understood the magnitude of the problem because, you know, when, when w- people are dealing already with multiple crises on the ground, um, they don't really see it as a threat because they're already dealing with multiple threats. So they're just probably thinking, you know what, just add it on to whatever, you know, whatever else we have. Um, it, this, this, this respiratory illness has actually, unfortunately, closed down some of the hospitals that were only once operating um, in the country because of fear that they may receive the, you know, frontline workers would receive the virus. Then you would have, um, you know, um, issues of PPE, which is protective, um, personal protective equipment. And, and just a lot of the protection for the doctors, they don't have that. They don't even have the basic bodysuit or glove, which is absolutely ridiculous of its own. And so it kind of put me question. It put me in a question where it's like, okay, what do we do? You know, there's so much problems. I'm sure at this level, COVID nineteen could have been, um, I would say, controlled, but because of lack of governance, it then became a. Uh, it just went, you know, downwards in terms of it just spiraled into a chaotic situation. Now, I think, in my opinion. Um, you know, Yemen's capabilities for policy have been uh, really poor. Uh, and so I think, um, I really think that COVID-19 um, was just looked at, you know, looked at from a perspective of, okay, you know, what's next on the list of just really bad luck and pretty much bad uh, things going on in Yemen. Now, what Yemen aid is doing is, 
you know, the PPE kits, we've been supporting them for that. Um, and, and then the second thing for frontline workers specifically at COVID facilities, not, see, that's the thing. When you're, when you're dealing with Yemen's health facilities, there are actually COVID specific facilities that um, are trained to kind of deal with this type of situation. Um, meanwhile, hospitals, regular hospitals are not. But that means that anyone who comes in the emergency room at a regular hospital could have COVID, but they don't really know, you know. Another issue, or at least another thing that we're um, dealing with and actually doing on the ground are medical shipments. These are really crucial. Um, we're actually doing one with direct relief, for example. I think it's about $1.5 million worth of respiratory machines and just really crucial, crucial things such as PPEs and such. Um, now, unfortunately, I have to tell you, though, COVID-19 kind of shows you how bad the situation is in various countries, right? When it comes to, you know, just the basic structure and leadership and governance. And without it, you can't really fight it um, and you can't really maintain it. So in Yemen's situation, you have multiple authorities on the ground, whether it's, um, you know, illegal authorities or um, legitimate authorities, it doesn't matter. At the end of the day, no one was able to enforce um, regulations, curfews, to even try to limit the virus. And this is a problem because then I realized the only way we can actually understand how bad COVID is, is while official numbers are not uh, pretty much accurate because of lack of uh, test kits by the millions, uh, we have to look at the deaths in Yemen um, to understand how many people are registered for deaths and uh, what was the, you know, pre-COVID death numbers and what are now, you know, COVID numbers in deaths. And so we've actually, in, in, in the city of Aden itself, we took that as an example, on average before COVID, about 10 to 12 people were, uh, uh, you know, whether killed or by death by illness, it varies, but that was the death certificate publication. Now, at least actually not even now, but in the month of, I would say late May, early June, it went up to 160 a day. Um, so it kind of explained to you how bad it is that it's already community level. COVID is community level and you can't really control it at that rate because, you know, people are still going about and, and at the end of the day, you can't enforce in some way some, you know, like closing down businesses because the economic situation is just as horrendous as before and people live day by day to survive, you know? And so in this situation, it's just chaotic in every level. I can't even explain to you from governance, from, you know, an overwhelming an overwhelmed and probably almost non-existent health, um, health sector. And on top of that humanitarian crisis, I mean, it's just really bad. I was, I was watching a video, um, earlier this week about how the Houthis were like downplaying their COVID numbers in order to prioritize like their economics and like their economic endeavors and stuff like that. So do you, what do you, do you feel like there is a priority in Yemen to like try to keep COVID controlled and uh, to like prioritize like the safety and health of people when it comes to leadership? Mm. See, that's a good question. I, and you know, this is when you're dealing with multiple groups, right? You, you, you know, you, 
you've wrapped your head around so many different theories and, and types of um, dynamic, you know, just understanding of, of what each group is trying to do based on their, you know, background, their agenda, whatever it may be. And I think in this way, you had two different groups talking in Yemen regarding COVID. You have, you know, Yemen's government side, which is, you know, um, an internationally recognized, uh, uh, you know, legitimate or, you know, government that was essentially just kind of pushed off from state institutions due to the Houthi coup. And then you also have on the, on the north side, you have, and this is, you know, the government side is actually in the south side. And in the north side, you have the Houthis which um, have an interesting take on, on COVID. And your point about them downplaying these numbers is really significant. Um, because the first thing is that I think, from my knowledge, and I could be incorrect in terms of the nationality, but I know it was non-Yemeni. The first COVID, or yeah, pretty much the first two COVID or the first COVID case that they identified was I believe Somalian or Sudani or something along those lines that they were, you know, in, in Yemen. And there was a lot of, there's a lot of migration uh, between those two uh, countries for various uh, reasons. But what they wanted to do was say, Hey, you know, COVID came from someone who's non-Yemeni. So maybe it was a racial issue, right? So in other words, it was not us, we're, we're pure or we're not pure, but more so we're actually healthy and they're the ones that are, you know, they're the enemies, they're bringing it here into the country. It's the whole concept of propaganda. So they are pretty much against any force outside of Yemen, except for Iran, pretty much. Um, and so that was one aspect. The, then after a few weeks, it was kind of ridiculous at that point, because in the South, uh, officials have already went up to 100, 150. I mean, they were like, trying to get as many cases as possible. But unfortunately, they just didn't have testing kits, which is a huge problem of its own. Um, then they, the Houthis went back and they said, okay, another two or three more cases. But actually, when you actually speak to locals, the hospitals are already full. They're jam-packed. Graveyards have been already closed from how full they are. Um, and so it kind of, it's a political agenda in a say where, um, you know, you, you, you know, you want to look like you're strong. So it's the same concept with North Korea, right? North Korea didn't essentially, uh, you know, say uh, much about COVID, that it was controllable and that were actually amazing. And that's pretty much the concept. Um, and then the second is that the Hosi argument was that, no, they just didn't want to create fear. Um, and so, but deep down, when you're actually talking to these, you know, when you're actually thinking about this, the, when you actually lessen the real cases, it doesn't help you as a state or as a group or as a territory, whatever it is in general, this is not even in Yemen, the more numbers you have and the more, you know, the better you understand this. And that's how you actually create policy to limit it. But we don't have that in Yemen. So at least per se with the Houthis, they just didn't want to kind of, um, you know, accept the fact that they didn't have control of it because they were even at times where certain markets, they randomly closed down and it caused suspicion. So, um, it's definitely leadership in general. There's no leadership per se. I don't expect leadership from, you know, uh, groups such as Houthis again, but I, I, I also I was expecting some sense of leadership from governance that was actually a legitimate government, but unfortunately it failed. So right now it's no one took, no one took the blame uh, and no one really took uh, responsibility for 
their lack of action, I guess. And that also includes not only just trophies and um, the government, but also another group, um, which is the Southern Transitional Council in the South, um, which had technically some authority on the ground in the South. Um, so nobody really took any responsibility, unfortunately. And looking more broadly at international aid and its flaws, so in 2017, you testified before the UN Human Rights Council um, about Yemen's humanitarian crisis. And, you know, what was that like? And also, in your experience working with these global organizations, what do you feel like the flaws are of the international community slash international organizations like the UN um, when dealing with national, multinational crises, like the one that involves Yemen? Yeah, I, um, I went to Geneva multiple times to talk about the crisis in Yemen, whether it's at side events or such, or meetings for that matter with um, closed meetings with different embassies. And, um, you know, I, I'm very mind boggled because I still feel like no matter how much we talk about the realities of the conflict from a local approach, right? Um, there's there, the international community is still not wrapping around the fact that they are very, very far away from just the, you know, the basic understanding of the root cause of conflict. And I think that's one of the reasons why we're always in conflict as a country. Like literally every few years, there's something, even before this 2015 issue, um, it's just, and 2014 coup. I mean, it's just mind boggling to me. So um, that's one of the problems. So when I actually went and spoke at these different events, I kind of just talked about it in, in, in a localized approach testimonies, you know, interviews of, and speaking, and also just giving recommendations. You, you tend to do that at the UN, so you always try to give recommendations of what needs to be done. Um, and still, like, and it's nothing, as if, as if we're talking almost gibberish-like. And it's unfortunate because now, and I can tell you this honestly, um, the UN is becoming part of the problem unfortunately. A lot of people, at least this is the localized approach from my knowledge, I mean, a lot of people are frustrated. A lot of citizens, are. they take the UN um, in a very non-serious manner. Uh, and I think that's a problem because the UN should have more credibility, but they're losing it in Yemen. And I think it's for one reason, and it's because it's prolonged. Uh, but also, it's because um, you know, from the Yemen side, from Yemen side, and actually from both sides. So even, you know, different parties in the, in the country, they're um, saying that the UN is biased. So whether it's Houthi saying, oh, no, they're biased towards Saudi Arabia. And then, you know, whether it's, you know, people from this, the, the legitimate side and saying, no, the UN is biased towards Houthis. Uh, you know, in all cases, everyone is saying something. So everyone is losing um, their their patients with the UN. Um, and that becomes a problem because a lot of their programs are placed there um, in the country. And so there are issues even on, that's a political level. Now, when you talk about the humanitarian level of problems, they do. I mean, INGOs have, whether it's um, government agencies from different countries or whether it's the UN agencies, uh, the approach is very, very wrong um, in multiple ways. Um, and Again, long-term, 
developmental, you know, just, just economic projects are more crucial than anything else. Um, I'll give you an example. So what I've seen recently when I went to Yemen was, and this is why we created this ambulance service. And that was one of the reasons why we did that. Um, because when we go to these hospitals, when I actually went to these hospitals, I found that I see a lot of ambulance cars parked up and not moving. And I kind of talked to the, you know, the hospital director or whatever it may be. And I tell them like, hey, you know, why aren't you moving this? They said, well, we got these gifts from such and such organization or a UN agency, but we can't operate them because we don't have the funds for it. And so interestingly, I said, then that's really pointless because then it doesn't help serve the people. What can we do? And so we then created ambulance services um, in Taiz, in the central, and Hodeida um, in the west side of Yemen. And um, we provide operational support to get the get these projects running instead of actually sitting down, um, you know, parked up on the side. And I think this is, this is the, this is a pure example of what the problem is. They're, they do something that doesn't completely cover the problem. And so it just creates a bigger problem over time. Um, so I think that's one example that can maybe understand that there's a big gap um, between the reality and, you know, what it's actually serving um, as a population. Wow, that's kind of ridiculous and, and very frustrating to, yeah. Yeah, it is, it is. And, I, and it's kind of, it's kind of, it breaks my heart because I'm like, it doesn't cost much to do this. I mean, I, I can guarantee you, like, I think it costs about 15 or $1,600 to run a month. And you're employing at least four people. You are actually giving something back to community in a way um, because you're helping four families now, you know, survive. But also you're dealing with, um, you know, a, just an amazing service that really makes or breaks someone's life. It really does. And that alone in itself is mind boggling because, you know, if you're, if an organization within the UN or a UN agency gives out, you know, $200,000 worth of cars, but doesn't op give them operating costs. Now, I'm sure, I'm, I'm not sure if they do that in general all the time, but this is literally what I've seen in every hospital. Um, and so at least in specifically in Abyen, the province of Abyen. And I'm just mind boggled because it doesn't cost much. So I don't know. I, and yeah, I just, and trust me, I mean, there are many other issues, but this is, I think, one way where we can actually understand how bad it is. And taking all of this information that you've shared today um, and thinking about what the listeners can do with it, what can everyday people do both on a grassroots and potentially an institutional level? I'm not sure if that's possible, but potentially uh, to support Yemenis who are going through and have been impacted by the humanitarian crisis. Um, you know, it's, it's it, it, a lot of people always say, what do we do? How, how can we help? And, and that's a really amazing question. And I think sometimes also a complicated one. Um, there are multiple ways you can assist Yemen. The first is, um, you know, getting to trust an organization and supporting them. So you actually feel comfortable that things are actually reaching the country. Um, that's, that's one way of supporting. The second is advocacy. Advocacy is really key. I mean, it's really key. That's why Yemen randomly, um, was talked about the last month or so, or two months ago, you know, everybody was just seeing, all I saw was Instagram, 
uh, you know, stories on Yemen. And, I, and everyone was asking me, they're like, what's going on in Yemen? I said, I don't know. I've, I mean, unfortunately, everything is the same. So I'm not sure why everybody's talking about Yemen. I guess it was a trend or something. I'm not even sure. But um, so advocacy, just basic understanding, but also ask a Yemeni. And it, there's a lot of misinformation about Yemen. I mean, I, I have to tell you, and that's one of the reasons why I always talk about Yemen. And I feel like if I don't, it, it continues to spread this misinformation. You have to get the full picture. You know, it's, Yemen is not, this crisis is not just this crisis. It was attributed to many, many multiple things uh, historically in Yemen. And so, you know, you have to look at just, you know, go back all the way to the 1960s. I mean, just Wikipedia for the, you know, for, for the Lord's sake, like it's not, I know it's complicated and it's a lot to take in, but they're just like three or four key points that you need to know. Um, and then this, it, while you do that, ask Yemeni and ask different opinions of Yemenis. Every Yemeni sometimes has a different version of what this conflict is, and that's okay. Uh, but it, then you have an understanding of the multiple ways people look at it. Um, so that's advocacy in terms of, or publicly, you know, actually talking about Yemen. Um, advocacy can also mean speaking at institutions, speaking at schools, um, you know, getting your Yemeni friends involved in more events, localized events that talk about Yemen. Uh, unfortunately, at one point early on in the in the conflict, there was a lot of panels on Yemen that didn't have any Yemenis on it, and it kind of blew my mind a bit um, because you know the Yemeni approach is different. The Yemeni approach from the south is different. The Yemeni approach from the north is different. So bring those people on board. Um, and then also, most importantly, talk to your senators, talk to your legislators. I know it's complicated. There's a lot of bureaucracy in the United States, right? Um, but the more you bring it up, the better. Um, talk about all sides. Talk about both the Houthi side, talk about the Saudi side. It, you, you know, we have to kind of approach this in a manner where it has to be just um, and fair. So at the end of the day, that's what's going to help Yemen. But mostly... After, you know, after this conflict ends, hopefully, do not forget Yemen. A lot of people forget Yemen. And I think it's, you know, it's, it's a problem because that, then that leaves them in a very vulnerable situation. Um, you know, I think, you know, continue to talk about it, continue to get to know the conflict through friends, through even the way you contacted me. I mean, you found me and you said, hey, can we talk? And I said, absolutely. Um, so these are just multiple ways. Um, let's see, what else? I'm thinking. Oh, and if you don't any, if you don't know anything, don't spread information either or misinformation, right? I think that's that could cause a lot of issues. Um, but it's it's a big crisis to tangle. I really, I really, really, you know, honestly applaud, and just I'm thankful for anyone who tries. I really do, even if it's kind of misinformation out there. But that's okay. At least they attempted to kind of understand it. Uh, but yeah. Thank you. Yeah. And in terms of if, if people are interested in working with uh, or partnering with Yemenate or if they want to donate, like how, how would they go about doing that? Yeah, we welcome partnerships. Um, we welcome anyone to donate to Yemen through Yemen Aid. And also we welcome anyone who has questions on Yemen. We, we love to answer them um, and we love to, to kind of give them a synopsis. Um, at contact at yemenaid.org that's our email actually and send us your questions and i think um it's important to understand that you know like i said yemen aid 
is a Yemeni American organization. You know, we are here to support but also give information. And then the partnerships are really important because like I said early on in the podcast, that we see ourselves as a bridge between, you know, the West and Yemen. You know, there's a lot of people come at me and say, hey, you know, it's so hard to get access to Yemen. How do you send a shipment? I said, listen, let's work together. We'll get the shipment in. We'll do all the paperwork. We'll distribute. Let's just do it together. And, and that's that. And it works wonderfully, honestly, you know, and we, we really truly appreciate the help and assistance, anything helps. I always tell my team, I'm like, listen, never ever refuse any help for Yemen because unfortunately we have just had such a horrible five years that we need even the basic of the basic. Like it's ridiculous. So I would love one day to say that um, Yemen aid is no longer needed because Yemen is back to normal and in a better situation than it was before. I really do. I, that's, I would say that would be our end goal um, in, in, in one way, you know. But, yeah, I think, yeah, it's just um, we welcome everyone. And we've been really, really, and I really want to give a shout out to all these people that have talked about Yemen aid, donated to Yemen. I mean, you guys have overwhelmed us the last few months, and we are so blessed and thankful. So, um, yeah, we really appreciate it. And Yemenis appreciate it, too. Yeah, that's great. And um, thinking about the future of your work and your activism, um, I know you talked about this a little bit just now, but do you have any other goals um, for Yemen aid looking to the future? And when it comes to your own work, where do you hope to take other facets of your activism uh, looking forward as well? This is an awesome question. I actually reflect on this a lot. Um, for Yemen aid, I definitely, like our goal is long-term, just long-term projects, rebuilding Yemen. That's really the key here. We want to make sure that we're actually, after the damage has been done, unfortunately, and it's just tragic to say, we as Yemen Americans, we want to give back in the most appropriate way and the most sufficient way. And so long-term, we want to you know, uh, rebuild the healthcare system, which is rigorous on, on its own, but um, that's one of our goals. We want to rebuild schools and that's hopefully we can do even the next few years. Um, and we really want to say that Yemen is slowly coming back together um, on a social level, on a, you know, on a governance level, on a humanitarian level, political, whatever you want to, yeah, you know, you name it, that's, it's fine. But at the end of the day, we just want things to be better. Um, and so Yemen aid will always be here to create that sustainable change um, in, the, in the future. And that is for sure. Um, personally, for me, I don't know. It's interesting because, um, you know, my background is not humanitarian. It's really, uh, a lot of people don't know. A lot of people think I've been in this type of field for years. I haven't. Um, I learn over time. And you know, I've made many mistakes in, in during this process. I'm lear I've learned so much. I cannot even tell you. Um, and I have just gained a new just life perspective on how vulnerable people can, um, can be in some situations and how do even the basics of help, you know, how does that even go a long way? Um, but my activism, I will always, always, always support Yemen in any field I go into, whether it's in IT, which I'm not pretty much, but, <laughs> but if I go into IT, I want to make sure that I develop technology or create programs in Yemen that can better, you know, youth and the future, whether it's in healthcare, I would love to do missions for, you know, so it's, it's, 
everything to me is is Yemen, um, whatever field I go to, whether it's public policy, how do I create change in Yemen through institutions and governance? I mean, these are these are key. And I think in all in all cases, anything that we do for Yemen, even on an activism base or even on a professional level, will assist Yemen if you actually put the work in it. And, uh, and for me, a lot of people say, why don't you focus in the United States and why can't you, you know, you, you, you tend to do a lot of leadership things. Why can't you just do something here? Why don't you run for office? I'm like, I'm like, you know, I love it here. This is my hometown, but I want to put my effort in Yemen because Yemen is on zero. They have nothing. So how can I take what I learned here and rebuild that there, whether it's nation, you know, nation building, whether it's just the basics of basics. So I don't know where life is going to take me, to be frank with you. <laughs> I'm just taking it day by day, basically. That's great. Yeah, I'm really excited to see what else you do um, and where your work and activism go in the future. Um, final question before we move on to the rapid fire questions. Um, where can people reach out to you if they have any questions about what we talked about today? And are there any resources that you'd recommend for people who are interested in learning more about Yemeni affairs or the Yemeni, uh, the Yemen humanitarian crisis or the history of Yemen? Yeah, everything like that. You know, I, um, for the contact, you can just contact our email, which is the general one, contact at yemenaid.org. Um, any questions pertaining to Yemen will be kind of uh, sent over to me, and then I'll just contact that person to kind of ensure, you know, to try to answer their questions to the best of their, their ability, my ability. But um, the second question, at least, you know, I, I definitely say there's a, um, a great author that I really respect, uh, or two great authors actually that I really respect when it comes to Yemen and their books on Yemen. And I found it really interesting. They're actually written by two non-Yemenis, one from Australia and one from the United States. Um, the one from the United States is Dr. Uh, Stephen Days. Um, he's actually an author for multiple books in Yemen, whether it's tribalism, whether it's actually the most recent book that he published, which I co-authored in one of the chapters with uh, an amazing expert um, on Yemen's conflict. And I definitely would say look into his uh, books. Um, this, and it also talks about other um, levels of and, and areas of conflict. So it could be from the, you know, the perspective of the UK, the perspective of Iran, the perspective, whatever it may be, it's in all in those books. Um, the second author is Sarah Phillips. Sarah Phillips is an amazing um, researcher. She has a few books on Yemen, and I think a lot of people respect her. There's also a few Yemeni experts um, that I can name off my, off, my, uh, off my mind, which is pretty much Nedwa Dosari, you can find her also on Twitter. Twitter is where it's at, guys. I mean, like, really? <laughs> Twitter is where it's at. Like, you can actually find so much amazing information on Twitter, so many experts. Um, so definitely those are my resources on Yemen for now. I don't have any specific website, um, but I'm sure there's ample. As you've done your research, you've seen very different uh, views and perspectives of the conflict. Um, so it all depends. It all depends. But definitely academic research is better than, you know, just the media uh, articles out there. Um, but yeah. Awesome. Thank Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing those. Um, and yeah, like I said, I will also put together some sort of resource list too. But 
yeah, for all the listeners out there, like definitely don't limit your research to those resources. Like definitely educate yourself, do, do exploring and learning on your own. Um, yeah. So Summer, before you go, I wanted to do a round of rapid fire questions with you. This is something that I do with all the guests on each episode of the podcast. Just five quick and casual questions just so the listeners can get to know you in different contexts. Okay, this is making me nervous. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing to be nervous about. No, no, go ahead. All right. First question. What keeps you optimistic and hopeful? Um my family and you know my son um i have one son pretty much the only one right now he's only six months old so i look at him and i say you know he's so simple he's so fun you know why can't i be like him you know so so that that's what makes me optimistic every day seeing him in the morning i really think so all right next question what is your favorite yemeni tradition I love, uh, in terms of the music, I love the music. I love the Yemeni traditional dance. So those, those are really two. I can be in the worst of moods. And if I have that, it just takes me to another world. All right. Next, if you could be magically fluent in any language, what would it be? I would love to understand Latin. If, if that's, yeah, I, I do, because I really think a lot of origin when it comes to the English language and multiple languages, even, even Arabic come from that. So I would love to learn that. That would be great. And what book or movie have you seen or read recently that you would recommend? Oh, you know, I'm not a TV watcher, I got to say. Oh, I watch Netflix, but that's really not the best way. To... <laughs> not the, yeah, I watch the weirdest stuff. Um, I don't know what kind of movies I have. I don't even remember how a movie theater looks like at this point, <laughs> but, but I don't know. Um, the book, I am very academically driven. So I actually, I don't read like fiction much. Um, I read a lot of sociology books cause I, my background is in sociology. Um, yeah, I, I, something along the sociology. I have multiple books in my bookshelf, but I don't have a specific one. Anything sociology for all the Yeah, anything people. sociology. Yeah. <laughs> and final question, what is a message that you have for an aspiring activist out there? Be patient and be careful. Um, be very careful because in the world of activism, activism you can get um, swayed away into doing either positive things or negative things. And I really think that if you tread the water carefully, you will be fine. But if you don't, you can lose your cause, honestly. Um, I've seen it many, many times. And so, and it's hard because in a world like this, um, when you do something negative, you can get a lot of financial rewards or, you know, it's politics, unfortunately. And so I would say be patient and be careful, honestly. Great. Thank you so much, Summer. Yeah, Mm -hmm. that is all of the rapid fire questions. Thank you so much again for coming onto the podcast. You know, hopefully the listeners learned a lot from this episode and take this information wherever they go and and learn to spread awareness and also do more research, do their own research. You know, hopefully this episode is a stepping stone for a lot of people out there. Um, to educate themselves and, like I said, like spread awareness. And at least for homecoming and using our platform as a podcast, we're, we're definitely going to support you guys and support Yemenade and the work that you guys do. 
So I'm really excited to see where you guys go in the future and we're definitely supporting you. So thank, thank you. you so much. Yeah. Yeah. No, thanks. Thanks for having me and the MA per se and giving us this platform to, to talk to you. And also thank you for your amazing work. Honestly, your platform is really important, not just for Yemen, but every other um, ethnic group out there that really deserves a space and a voice. So we appreciate you and support you. Thank you. No problem. Take care. Hi, everyone. It's Angel Rena here. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please make sure to give us those five stars, subscribe to Homecoming wherever you're listening right now, and make sure to follow at Homecoming Pod on Instagram and Facebook to get to know our guests better and for behind-the-scenes content. Also, feel free to visit Yemen Aid's website, YemenAid.org, if you are interested in learning more about what they do and or donating to or working or partnering with them. And also uh, visit their Instagram at YemenAidUS and their Facebook to get additional info as well. And finally, I just wanted to plug once more the resources document that I've put together of Yemen's history and the causes slash details of the humanitarian crisis and how countries like the U.S. are complicit in it and fueling it and uh, also other organizations to donate to. And once again, this is by no means a comprehensive list of resources, and I encourage you to learn more on your own or by reaching out to people. And also just do what Summer suggested earlier, you know, call slash email your senators, do your educating and your research, and spread awareness on your social medias and do it in a sustained manner. Um, I'm currently thinking about how I can do a more collective fundraising or organizing around that through the homecoming platform. So I will let you all know when I have updates for that. But I've put that link to the resources doc in the episode description, wherever you're listening, and also in the homecoming link tree. Um, next week, Conrad Lihilihi, a Hawaiian filmmaker, photographer, and overall visual storyteller, will be on the podcast. So I will see you all then. Bye. Thank you.